This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. David Sass, a pediatric nephrologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and my discussions will be focused on pediatric topics. As pediatricians, we have a pretty good system for keeping tabs on infants and making sure they're growing and developing normally. The initial newborn exam and well-child visits throughout infancy enable us to use that superpower we all develop during training, recognizing the abnormal amongst a sea of normal. Sometimes abnormal findings trigger concerns for an inborn error of metabolism. And that, my friends, may trigger uncomfortable thoughts of intimidating biochemical metabolic pathways swirling in our brains. So how should we approach these babies with findings concerning for inborn errors of metabolism, which besides being complicated are often dangerous conditions requiring very specific treatment without feeling overwhelmed? Today, we're joined by Dr. Brendan Lanfer, a board-certified geneticist at the Mayo Clinic's Children's Center here in Rochester, Minnesota. It's my pleasure to have him here to guide us through the evaluation and management of a child suspected to have an inborn error of metabolism. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Lanfer. Thank you, Dr. Sass. I'm very happy to be here. Now, I know inborn of errors of metabolism are a very broad topic, and me asking you to discuss them in a single podcast episode is like someone asking me, tell me everything you know about children's kidneys in the next 20 minutes. But I think we can discuss some high-yield topics that pediatricians will find useful. So let's start with this. What are the most common presenting signs and symptoms of a child with an inborn error of metabolism? And what are some of the less common things pediatricians should look out for? When I think about inborn errors of metabolism, I really think about different phenotypes and different types of metabolic disorders. A broad categorization that I would use would be disorders of small molecules and energy metabolism, which tend to present quickly, severely, with dangerous laboratory findings in times of crisis. The second broad category would be disorders of large molecules or storage disorders. And they really are two separate categories and two separate presenting patterns. With the small molecule diseases, which I think are the ones that people really worry about, those are kids that typically appear fine at birth. And then depending on the severity of the enzymatic deficit they have, they might present in a matter of days or even hours after birth with acute decompensation. That can be acidosis, hypoglycemia, hyperaminemia, and with rapid decline in mental status and overall stability, usually after uh, delivery because they're no longer having abnormal metabolites cleared by the placenta and often exacerbated by initial feeding. Similarly, patients with the same disorders, but with milder deficits in those same enzymes might present later in life with any kind of catabolic stress. Children with partial defects in those enzymes may do well when they're healthy, may do well when they are not stressed, but when they have a fever or have vomiting, diarrhea, prolonged fasting, for whatever reason, they might not be able to compensate for that catabolic stress and present with similar kinds of laboratory features. And so I would worry about a child who appears much sicker than they should after a minor illness, a child who is getting significantly hypoglycemic or acidotic after 
what seems like a fairly typical childhood you know, vomiting or diarrheal episode, or any child that is having significant mental status changes with these minor stressors. In the other category, kids with storage diseases, that's a really broad group of disorders, and it really depends on which disease we're talking about in terms of which tissues are involved. Some of those can have skeletal findings, so a child who's having slowing of growth or has abnormal bones on x-ray, or organomegaly, large liver and spleen are common features with many of them, or most ominously would be developmental regression, losing skills, which can be a feature of things like Tay-Sachs disease and similar lysosomal storage disorders. So let's say a two-month-old boy comes to the general pediatrician's office and his growth is poor, and maybe the pediatrician notices some early delays in milestones. What should the next steps be? Well, I think delay that's evident at two months is quite concerning and indicates a child who's likely significantly behind. The differential diagnosis is really broad. It includes metabolic disorders, but a lot beyond just metabolic disorders. Delay and poor growth can be a sign of you know, hypotonia, meaning a myopathy, which can be metabolic or not metabolic. I think it, it, careful history is the first step. You know, if there's a family history of a known genetic disease, that's helpful. There often isn't with these disorders, which are in the main, not entirely, but mostly autosomal recessive. With small molecule metabolism diseases, I would be carefully asking for issues with feeding, so are they vomiting a lot? What does their mental status look like? In a two-month-old, you know, you'd expect some developmental progress in tone and interactive behaviors, but in a child who's encephalopathic, you might not see that. I would be questioning a family, do they seem to be doing worse than they were previously, which could be a sign of you know, a progressive myopathy or something like spinal muscular atrophy or other disorders that aren't metabolic. But in the metabolic space, I'd be really thinking about, you know, how are they doing with feeding? Do they seem worse after feeds? Those are all kinds of clues I would be looking for. In fact, two months would be a strange time to present with a inborn error metabolism. Typically, patients with very severe, you know, complete deficits of a metabolic uh, pathway might present in the first hours or days of life with partial defects. They typically present later with fasting or stressors, which are not super common at two months, but it, it can happen at any age, really. So what things make you worry acutely? What findings should a pediatrician treat like a true emergency? Well, I think the labs are what I look to and to try to determine how sick a baby with an inborn error is. And and so certainly anybody with um, high ammonia levels and encephalopathy would be a, a metabolic emergency. Someone with severe acidosis out of proportion to whatever their illness history seems to be would be important. And of course, hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia is acutely dangerous, easily treatable, needs to be recognized quickly. You mentioned ammonia, you mentioned uh, serum glucose level. So let's say a worried mother calls into the pediatrician and says, hey, my baby's two days old and all of a sudden she's looking very lethargic and she's been vomiting. I think I need to bring her into you. So, you know, of course, you know, sepsis and other things are on the list of possibilities. But that aside, if you were suspecting a metabolic defect or an inborn error of metabolism, what's sort of the, the broad panel of labs that you would recommend a pediatrician order in that circumstance? The baby with suspected sepsis is an important phenotype that can very 
closely mimic a child with an inborn error metabolism. So any child who's having that workup, I think it would be reasonable to check things like a blood gas, looking at their pH, obviously their glucose. Ammonia is an important lab that would be elevated in many different inborn errors of metabolism, whether we're talking about a urea cycle disorder or many of the organic acidemias. If those are abnormal, or if you have a strong suspicion for an inborn error, then it would be also important to include things like plasma amino acids, urine organic acids, plasma acylcarnitine profile. All of those sort of metabolic screening tests are going to be a lot more valuable if they're collected during an episode than after stabilization. Because for some of these conditions, though not all of them, the abnormal metabolites and the abnormal patterns on labs are only seen when the child is acutely sick and may normalize after they're stabilized. And they might be stabilized even with just fluid rehydration or glucose supplementation. And so we want to collect those samples early in their disease course so we can get an answer quickly and so that we have the highest diagnostic yield. So you mentioned a blood gas, and of course, as a nephrologist, I care deeply about acid-base homeostasis. Um, so tell me, is the serum bicarbonate that we get from a BMP enough to assess that, or do you need a VBG, or does it have to be an arterial blood gas? I think it very much depends on the patient and, and kind of how worried you are and how sick they appear. Doing an arterial draw in every child does not seem reasonable to me, but certainly if they're scary, if there's, if there's a real concern for an acute crisis, then that's going to have more value than just a uh, bicarb on a typical metabolic panel. So zooming out a bit, what are the top five most common inborn errors of metabolism that you see? In my clinic, the most common disorders are uh, PKU, uh, phenylketonuria, um, MCAD, which is medium chain acylcoid dehydrogenase deficiency. Those two are by far the most common small molecule diseases we see. We also see a lot of patients with galactosemia or variant forms of galactosemia. And then in the storage disease category, we see a lot of patients with Fabry disease and Gaucher disease, especially. What is the role nowadays of newborn screening in the world of inborn errors? Well, newborn screening has been transformative for a lot of these diseases. Current newborn screening depends on the state, but includes around 50 different disorders in most states, with more being added all the time. The most impactful recent changes to newborn screening has been to include some of the storage diseases. So here in Minnesota, we're now screening for mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, as well as Pompe disease or glycogen storage disease type 2, with more likely to be added in the future. Uh, other states are adding different lysosomal storage diseases, but that's been a big recent change. That's been a bit complicated because we are detecting both the severe infantile onset forms of those conditions, but also later presenting forms of those diseases and what's appropriate from a early screening standpoint for those late presenting phenotypes is still to be worked out, I think. In terms of the small molecule disorders, the impact on diseases like PKU and MCAD can't be overestimated. Prior to newborn screening, many patients with MCAD would either die or have severe lifelong impacts from their initial presentation. MCAD is a fairly simple disorder to treat. We just give patients calories when they're sick that are easily metabolized, so basically glucose, with any kind of catabolic stress, and they do really well in the main. 
And so it's very, very unusual for us to see patients with MCAD with lethal outcomes now, whereas in the prior to newborn screening era, that was quite typical. Newborn screening for MCAD has been around since the early 2000s. Newborn screening for PKU has been around since the late 60s, early 70s. And patients with PKU prior to that universally had severe intellectual disability, often epilepsy, microcephaly, and really severe impairments. And we just don't see that anymore, almost ever. We have a handful of patients that have been missed by newborn screening over the years, but really that's extraordinarily unlikely, at least with PKU. And patients with PKU now who are treated throughout their lifetime, they're fine. They're normal. It's a challenging disease to manage and it's a challenging disease to have, but really their outcomes are not limited by their disease anymore. So you mentioned uh, for those MCAD patients, delivery of glucose, just out of curiosity, from a practical standpoint, is that, you know, a quick feeding with baby formula or breast milk or cornstarch, or how do you do that from a practical standpoint? For babies and toddlers with MCAD who are not necessarily reasonable, we would recommend seeing them in an ER with an IV. It's very typical for kids who don't feel well to not want to eat. That's fine if you have normal metabolism. It's not fine if you have MCAD. And so rather than try to negotiate with a ill baby or toddler, it's just best to bring them to the ER. Older patients who can self-report how they're feeling and can understand their disease process, it might be a different story. Wouldn't pediatrics be so much easier if infants and toddlers were reasonable? Yes, but it wouldn't be as fun, would it? (laughs) (laughs) That is true. So are there any major inborn errors in metabolism that are not commonly tested on newborn screening panels? Yeah, so the newborn screening is somewhat limited by chemistry, right? So there's some uh, diseases that are hard to detect with what we get from a newborn screening, which is primarily amino acids, acyl carnitines, and then some disease-specific measures. The things I worry about from a newborn screening standpoint are some of the proximal urea cycle disorders, which don't have a particular elevation that's really characteristic other than ammonia. And so those I I worry about a lot. And then there's a lot of rare inborn errors that are just not detected by the current newborn screening. There are hundreds and hundreds of different inborn errors and only about 50 that are included on the newborn screening. The other group I worry about is those that are so sick they present prior to newborn screening. So newborn screening is not that useful for the most severe patients with maple syrup urine disease or propionic acidemia or methylmalonic acidemia. Those kids are typically sick at day one or two of life. And the newborn screening as we have it now might come back two or three days later. And that's really too late for those early presenting patients. What are a few things that you want all pediatricians to know about children with inborn errors of metabolism? First of all, these are really fascinating diseases. And I think they're not as scary as they should be. People think about them remembering their chemistry class in medical school or undergrad, which might've been very daunting and just a bunch of pathways on paper or on a screen nowadays. But in fact, they're quite simple. If you have PKU, you're missing an enzyme that converts phenylalanine to tyrosine. And that means your phenylalanine goes up and your tyrosine goes down. And then to treat it, we supplement tyrosine and restrict phenylalanine. It's very elegant. It's very simple. Much, much more simple than patients with hypertension or kidney stones that you might see, or patients with asthma or or sepsis or diabetes or other sort of complex multifactorial diseases that might be familiar, but have a much, much more complicated pathomechanism. So I think these are elegant diseases because we can really target the particular physiology that's abnormal. 
The other important thing about these diseases is that for many of them, we make a huge difference if we take care of them right. Patients with inborn errors might have more hospitalizations, they might have more doctor's visits, but for somebody with PKU or MCAT or other disorders that are similar, their outcomes will be really good if they follow their the regimen that we outline. It takes engagement with the whole medical system to help them often, and so their pediatricians are real key allies in that. The other important thing for generalists to know about with these diseases is that when those kids are sick, they may look well, and we may feel like we're over-treating them to give someone an IV with glucose if they've vomited twice for someone with like MCAT or, or some of the other fatty acid oxidation defects, but we're preventing a much worse decompensation. And so while that would be over-treatment for many children who are sick, for these children, it's the right treatment. And so to not push back when parents come in with a treatment plan that includes what seems like very aggressive management plans. And by the way, medical genetics is a subspecialty with a few different paths, unlike most pediatric subspecialties in which we do our three years of pediatric residency, followed by three years of pediatric subspecialty training, and then board certification. So can you describe the different ways one can become a medical geneticist? Well, medical genetics is its own standalone residency. Currently, and this is different than when I trained, you can go do a medical genetics residency after any single year of training. So people can do a transitional year, or sometimes people do uh, full other residencies prior to joining us. I did a pediatrics residency prior to doing my genetics residency, and then I did a biochemical genetics fellowship. But there's lots of different backgrounds that people bring to medical genetics. We have people in our program here who were internal medicine doctors prior to doing genetics or did medpeds or did OBGYN. And basically any specialty has relevance to genetics. And so there are people that focus on adults with cancer and everything else. So it's really a diverse group of physicians that make up the medical genetics community in a diverse range of prior experience. More and more, I think people are choosing it directly out of medical school, but that wasn't an option over a decade ago, back when I was in training. And so it's an interesting group of folks. I like to tell trainees and medical students that we see everybody's most interesting patients. And so you have to be really excited about rare and unusual diseases. We really touch patients from all over the spectrum at every age, from prenatal to the elderly. It's really an exciting group of patients and it's really an exciting field, at least in my opinion. So yeah, and you mentioned your fellowship after your genetics training in, what what did you say, biochemical Mm -hmm. uh, metabolism? So besides that, what are some of the other fellowships, you know, the the other ways that a medical geneticist can specialize? So a lot of the fellowships in medical genetics are really lab driven. So there's people do biochemical. There's two different biochemical fellowships now. When I did mine, there was just medical biochemistry. Now there's clinical and medical. One is more lab-based and one is more clinic and patient management-based. And then there's patients that do laboratory genetics training, sort of more focusing on the molecular techniques and cytogenetic techniques that are used to make genetic diagnoses. There's not a formal fellowship, but a lot of people who do uh, medical genetics may do additional time in oncology or OBGYN, depending on kind of what their clinical focus is going to be. All right. So let's go back to clinical issues here. As genetic testing becomes more accessible, do you foresee a time when the pediatrician will simply click an order in their electronic medical record for a, quote, 
inborn error of metabolism gene panel. So those kinds of panels exist already. They're not routinely ordered by generalists. Many newborn screening labs are incorporating at least limited genetic testing, DNA-based testing into the newborn screening to help reduce false positive numbers and increase the, the accuracy of newborn screening. Depends on the disease in question but that's been incorporated already. For many patients that we see after abnormal newborn screening or in the setting with suspected new inborn error, we might do biochemical testing in parallel to genetic testing, DNA-based testing, because both can help prove or disprove a suspected disorder. We are moving towards bigger and bigger panels, and in fact, moving towards exome and genome testing. There's efforts happening here at Mayo and at multiple other centers to include whole exome or whole genome sequencing as part of the routine management of every baby that's in the NICU or nearly every baby in the NICU. And that's going to be a really transformative change in terms of how we're detecting these and other relevant diseases quickly and comprehensively. Great. And so then besides advances in diagnostic tools for inborn errors of metabolism, what are some cutting edge innovations in treatment that you think are exciting? This is a really exciting time in genetics in general. So for a long time, our field has primarily been a diagnostic one. And really the inborn heirs were the only patients that we had specific treatments for in the whole sort of spectrum of genetic disease. Historically, we've treated patients with dietary therapies, supplements, medications in some cases. But for many patients, we haven't had really targeted specific therapy. Starting around 10 or 20 years ago, we began having enzyme replacement therapy for some of the storage diseases, and that's expanding quickly. We're adding new enzyme replacement therapies uh, all the time. But most excitingly recently has been the advances in gene therapy. So gene therapy is currently approved for just a handful of genetic diseases, but there are hundreds of gene therapy trials that are happening right now and dozens are happening for inborn errors and metabolism. And so I really think that that's going to be a really big change in the next year or two, really, that gene therapy is going to be the main way we treat many of these diseases going forward. Similar to that, but separately, there's also a lot of exciting advances in other kinds of gene-targeted treatments. So antisense oligonucleotides, small inactivating RNAs are ways of targeting particular genes or particular alleles or particular mutations within genes to affect expression of a gene. An example of one that's been approved recently is a small inactivating RNA for many of the types of acute porphyria. And so we treat those by blocking a enzyme that's upstream of the deficient enzymes, which then prevents the accumulation of the toxic metabolites in that group of diseases. And that's very effective. It's a once a month in subcutaneous injection. It's a really nice addition to our options for treating that group of disorders. Very interesting, Dr. Landfer. So we have a lot to look forward to in this field. What a great time to be in pediatrics. We've been discussing the evaluation and management of a child suspected of having an inborn error of metabolism. And we've learned about the importance of identifying babies who decompensate, certainly in the first few days of life, raising suspicion for an inborn error of metabolism and how best to work them up. Our discussion has been guided by Dr. Brendan Landfer, a board certified geneticist at the Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota. Thank you very much for your time and expertise, Dr. Landfer. 
this has been a lot of fun. Happy to chat anytime. Great. So if you have enjoyed this Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next time.